0: A lot of women with polycystic ovary syndrome are told, you just got to lose weight, you just got to lose, you know, 5% of your your body mass, but that's not always such an easy solution because these women are very resistant to weight loss. They have metabolic inflexibility. And so once again, food, nutrition, lifestyle is really one of the most effective strategies for dealing with high testosterone.
1: Well, hi everyone. I'm Dr. David Perlmutter. Welcome back to The Empowering Neurologist. You know, the unfortunate truth of the matter is that most diet plans are created for and by men. And with the popularity these days of going keto, the ketogenic diet, you know, cutting carbs, increasing dietary fat, Again, this has been mostly studied almost exclusively in men. and it turns out that diet, whatever diet a woman may choose, has a huge impact uh, in terms of hormone regulation, hormone balance, hormone activity. And these uh, issues play a huge role in determining uh, levels of health, longevity, health span, and you know just basically how a woman might feel day to day. You know truthfully, hormones play a role in male health as well, but today we're talking about female health and the relationship of diet uh, in terms of influencing hormone levels and hormone activity uh, in women. The book that we're going to be talking about today is Women, Food, and Hormones by my good friend, Dr. Sarah Gottfried. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Gottfried. Dr. Sarah Gottfried is a hormone expert. She's a Harvard-educated physician scientist, and she is a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Integrative Medicine and Nutritional Sciences at Sidney Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University. She is a New York Times bestselling author of three previous books that we've actually talked about in the past, including The Hormone Cure. I'm always delighted to spend time with Dr. Sarah Gottfried. She's so deeply informed on subjects like these that are actually very important. So uh, let's jump right into our interview. Dr. Gottfried, it's so great to have you back on the program.
0: Thank you, happy to be here.
1: I really enjoyed uh, reading your book. Uh, It's, um, you know, I think one of the main pushes that you make is that, you know, women and their needs and their responses to diet and regulation of hormones, it's not as if they're just uh, versions of males. I mean, you made that so clear. And as I talked about in the introduction, how so much of what goes on in the world of uh, diet and dietary recommendations is really male-centric. So um, I wanna start, we'll get back to that, but I wanna start, you are the director of precision medicine at the Marcus, uh, is it called the Institute? Yes, Institute of Integrative Health. Tell us what goes on there and what precision medicine is all about.
0: Precision medicine is about taking an individual and really personalizing a treatment plan. So that comes from looking at genomics. It comes from looking at biomarkers and then putting the story together so that you can really prevent disease, you can prevent pre-disease. So it's, uh, it also incorporates wearables. We use a lot of technologies such as continuous glucose monitoring, aura rings, uh, other devices that help us you know, go beyond just that, that period of time we have with telehealth. So it's a way of expanding our care.
1: And uh, far more effective, isn't it?
0: It is. I mean, the outcomes are pretty dramatic. This is really, you know, the work that I do is primarily for optimization. It's not so much the stabilization that I learned when I went through conventional medicine that you learned as well. It's really much more about how do we improve performance? How do we improve health span? How do we help folks with really personalizing nutrition?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, in my education, uh, and especially once I uh, did my neurology residency, it was about naming, basically naming the disease that a person had. Uh, Learning you know, once we could categorize that disease, whether it's hypertension or Alzheimer's whatever, then there was the quick fix that we were all instructed in terms of making that fit to the patient. So it's more about... uh, precision medicine, knowing the person who has the disease rather than just the disease the person has. We had a wonderful interview recently with Dr. Dale Bredesen, who, as you know, uh, is deeply uh, involved in leveraging the whole notion of precision medicine as it relates to understanding why, believe it or not, why people uh, are having cognitive decline and ultimately are diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And in his recent publication is reversing Alzheimer's disease I would say that your work similarly uh, approaches hormone and hormone, uh, hormones and hormone regulation uh, through diet. So, maybe just the broad stroke view in terms of how food choices that a woman might make may influence uh, hormonal levels and hormone activity.
0: Well, let me first say that I, I love what Dale Bredesen is doing. I think he's, he's taken what's happened in precision medicine for oncology, and he's applied it to Alzheimer's disease, which is something we so desperately need because as you know, folks with Alzheimer's disease and even mild cognitive impairment are so failed by our current medical system. And yes, we can do the same thing when it comes to men, women, hormones, nutrition. So in broad strokes, what I wanna do is I want for people to understand that Food is the backbone of the hormones you make. Fat is incredibly important, healthy fat. You've been talking about this in your books for many years, how we don't wanna be afraid of fat. When you go low fat, that actually reduces many of the sex hormones that you make because cholesterol is converted into pregnenolone. That's the mother hormone of all the sex hormones that you make. So when it comes to you know, the cortisol, the progesterone, the estrogen, the testosterone, the DHEA, all of those come from healthy fat. So we wanna be leveraging the way that we eat to improve our hormonal balance.
1: So, um, you know, when, when you look at the title of your book, Woman, Women, Food and Hormones, you know, right away, we're thinking, oh, this is gonna be a book uh, about basically progesterone and estrogen, maybe uh, if you're a little more open-minded testosterone, but you know, it's, a, it's a much bigger picture than that. I mean, you, you go into great detail about Insulin, which is a hormone, uh, looking at uh, cortisol, looking at leptin, ghrelin, uh, growth, fact, uh, growth hormone, human growth hormone, um, IGF-1, etc. And so it, it is a much broader picture than women might think about at first blush in terms of what the word hormone is really all about. And maybe you can uh, take that intro and just get us to a place of why the uh, effect, the action of hormones on metabolism is so fundamental as it relates to health and, you know, some of the health goals that women may
0: have. Certainly. Well, we know that, you know, I I think of insulin as maybe one of the most important hormones. And a lot of women don't realize the connection between insulin, cortisol, estrogen, testosterone. Insulin is, I would say, the, the gatekeeper of metabolism. And One of the things we know is that with food, you can change your insulin levels within 72 hours. A lot of people don't realize that. They wait for a medication. Maybe they're diagnosed with prediabetes or they're diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, and they think that a medication is going to solve the problem. And what we know, I've known this since I was in Harvard Medical School 30 years ago, we know that food and lifestyle is actually a much more important lever than any medication. So insulin is is really key. It's key to metabolic flexibility. It's not the only hormone involved. Estrogen's also involved because that plays such an important role in appetite. We know that leptin is involved. We know that ghrelin, you know, kind of the hunger hormone, is also involved. Growth hormones involved. So there's this symphony of hormones that we want to be thinking about.
1: And. Uh... Is this just for premenopausal women, or what is the, this, the importance of this postmenopausal?
0: Well, I would say it's important over the entire lifestyle, life cycle. It's important in pregnancy. We know that gestational diabetes, for instance, is on the rise. We know that pregnancy is really a stress test for women in terms of cardiovascular disease. We think of preeclampsia as being you know, kind of this early harbinger of future cardiometabolic disease. We also we know that when women go through perimenopause and estrogen starts to fluctuate wildly, we know that that's associated with a change in the way that fat is deposited on the female body. So it's involved in appetite as estrogen starts to decline toward the second half of perimenopause. It's also involved in um, in this change in in really metabolism. So you know what happens is women shift sometime in their 40s, from depositing fat at their breasts, their hips, and their buttocks to depositing it viscerally. And that really shifts women to this this new metabolic state, unless you're actively doing something about it.
1: Hmm. Early in the book, you talked about that you had the opportunity to work with the ideal patient that was yourself. <laughs> and uh, I-, I always love to read that in a book because... Um, you're not going to find anybody uh, more dialed in or dedicated uh, than that particular author who uh, may have had a, a, you know, a, a, an experience that relates to the topic of the book. You were in your 30s beginning to accumulate body fat in areas that you didn't like. Uh, you, uh, you had elevation of your blood sugar to the extent that you were told you were pre-diabetic. Uh, and you even were offered up an antidepressant. So this was a real wake-up call with your background and understanding that nutrition seems to matter, a real wake-up call that it's not do as I say, not as I do, but that you really had to take this information to heart and implement for yourself.
0: That's true. And, you know, this is not just about me, of course. This is about the 88% of Americans who who don't know that they have prediabetes. So this happened to me in my mid-30s. I couldn't lose weight after I had my second baby. And what was happening for me, Dr. Pormutter, is that I, I was flipping that metabolic switch from flexible, from working with insulin properly, to metabolically inflexible. And the way it showed up for me was rising fasting glucose. So I went from a fasting glucose in the 70s to 80s on up to 99, 100, 105, 110, and I was really shocked to find this. My insulin was rising too, of course, that predates the rise in glucose. So I I discovered that, you know, there were a few different threads here. One was that I definitely had insulin resistance in that pregnancy, that second pregnancy of mine. That was part of the reason why I couldn't lose the baby weight. That's a story that I think many women will relate to because you don't realize that, you know, the same tricks that she tried with diet – now maybe don't work, and part of the reason why they don't work is because of that metabolic inflexibility. So maybe we could talk for a minute about metabolic flexibility. Do you have a favorite definition? Should we riff a bit on that?
1: I, I like the term uh, metabolic flexibility because I always it always reminds me of flex fuel when they used. To, I don't know if they do it anymore. They used to build cars that can run on. Uh, I think uh, ethanol versus gasoline, or I don't even remember what it was, I mean. Uh, but I, I think, you know, I, I use the interpretation uh, to mean that uh, you can utilize ketones. You can be keto-adapted. And that, uh, you know, I, I think it's an opportunity for everyone, for, for women more than men, as I learned in your book, uh, it's a, a bit more of a challenge for a number of reasons, and therefore, uh, it takes a little bit more work and may not even be as well tolerated uh, as it is in men. So I think that's really important information. But you made it through the Gottfried Plan. Gosh, how'd you come up with that name? <laughs> you made it um, <laughs> really very workable, and you threw a wide net, very inclusive net, and offered women, um, you know, a lot of opportunity to kind of uh, you know embrace their differences and still be able to harvest. Uh, an upside from getting into a some, somewhat ketogenic um, program. So my, my interpretation is that it is, uh, allows your body to burn carbs, burn fat, and um, you know, uh, maybe it is just another interpretation of the term keto-adaptation or keto-adaptable. Keto so I think that's where you're going in the, in the book.
0: That is where I'm going. You know I, I love your, your use of the analogy of a hybrid car because I I think that works really well here. The idea is that you can change your fuel source based on what's available. So if uh, if it's carbs that you have because you just ate an apple, then you can burn those carbs for fuel. If it's that you've been intermittently fasting maybe for 16 hours or 14 hours or 18 hours, depending on how keto adapted you are, you're making ketones, you can burn those for fuel. So there's this ability to flip back and forth depending on the type of fuel that's available. And that flexibility is so important. It's, it's really key, I think, to neurological conditions. It's key to many of the things that I want to prevent, such as type 2 diabetes. I've been able to reverse the, the pre-diabetes that I had. I have a lot of Alzheimer's disease in my family, so this is really important to me. And you know, it might be helpful just for a moment to talk about how did I get there? So besides the pregnancy and kind of the, the insulin resistance, pardon my voice, I've got a voice disorder and I it's a, a little broken right now, so I hope you can still understand me. My husband thinks of it as like an accent, so uh, maybe we can think of it that way.
1: I, I'm sorry, your husband thinks of it as what?
0: As an accent. It's like an, a,
1: accent. Okay. like an
0: accent that you have to get used to listening, like a foreign accent. Okay. So one way to think of it. So. i think
1: that your words are what we're hanging on here because they're they're um so incredibly meaningful and i just want to say as i'm as i'm listening to you right now over the years i don't know many people who um explore things as deeply as you do and not just from the scientific perspective but from the passion perspective that yeah uh, you know right now you're telling us your story but this is the passion uh, to then extend this to everyone with whom you come into contact through your books and through even, you know, day to day in your clinic. So the, it, it's not lost on me. It's so appreciated. But anyway, I'll, I'll let you continue.
0: Well, thank you for that. It's, uh, it always warms my heart to hang out with you. Um, so how did I get there? So we know that pregnancy is an insulin resistant state. I especially had that problem because I gained about 50 pounds with both of my pregnancies but beyond that, after I had these two beautiful babies, I was snacking all the time. I was eating, I would say every two to three hours because I was just hungry all the time. I had cravings, I had a lot of carb cravings. And that was, that was what kind of led to this snowball effect of becoming pre-diabetic. And I remember going to the lab after I left that doctor's office who you know told me to start an antidepressant and maybe a birth control pill. When I left his office and I went to the lab, I measured my glucose. It was in the hundreds, my fasting glucose, my insulin was in the 20s to 30s. And I realized I've got to change what I'm eating. Like what I was offered by my primary care physician was not going to solve the root cause of my problems. Who knew? Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's really the root of the passion. That's really the root of why I get so excited to write these books and to, you know, I've never written a book about keto before. I've never written a book about intermittent fasting or even detoxification for women. And so it was when I was really struggling with my weight that I started to take on the ketogenic diet. I love your books. I love your writing about the ketogenic diet. But I realized the way that I was taught to do it, kind of more classic keto, didn't work for me. I actually gained weight on it. So that's what got me to, you know, look at a deeper level at how female physiology maybe requires something different because so much of the research on keto was done in men. And as you said at the beginning, women are not just small versions of men.
1: Or, or, or children are not small versions of adults, which we try to, you know, make it a one-size-fits-all kind of mentality. Um, but let's just look a little bit more deeply at why keto might be um, getting into ketosis might be a little bit more challenging for women, and then beyond that, why might women more than men have difficulty in uh, tolerating a ketogenic diet?
0: Yeah, I think there's a few reasons for the difference between men and women and how we respond to the ketogenic diet. First is, of course, sex hormones. Whenever we think of sex differences, these differences that are uh, biological between men and women, we tend to go first to the sex hormones. So we know, for instance, that men have much more testosterone. They have about 10 times as much. That gives them the testosterone advantage. They have more muscle mass. They tend to have a faster metabolism. They respond better to nutritional changes. They uh, don't have the same sort of requirements in terms of, uh the gonads and kind of protecting body weight the way that women do. So the testosterone advantage is one thing, although I have to make a note here that women have testosterone too, and we're exquisitely sensitive to it. And for a lot of women over the age of 40, when testosterone starts to decline, women notice that their muscle mass is not quite the same. They don't respond at the gym the same way. They uh, they certainly notice a change in metabolism. They may notice that sex drive declines, they may notice that um, even their confidence and their agency declines. So, testosterone is one, another is estrogen.
1: estrogen. I, you know, I, I think it's, it's so great that you made that point because we tend to pigeonhole these uh, players in, in biochemistry. Well, insulin does one thing what does it do? It puts sugar into the cell. Uh, and helps make with uh, formation of glycogen, end a story. And well, gosh, we know that, that especially in the brain, it, it's, just such, it, it's very myopic. Progesterone, pro for gestation, that's obviously a female hormone. Then, then why do I have progesterone receptors throughout my body? And here you make a very good point that testosterone, though we think, well, you know, low T, that's a male thing, and men need their testosterone, et cetera. Um, that, you know, it's really uh, there's so many issues uh, that women have related to lower uh, testosterone that, um, you know, it, it just we tend to think of put things in categories and uh, I think your point is well taken. So let's talk about testosterone in the woman for, for just a moment. Uh, there were it seems like, though, you did a wonderful job describing how testosterone is so important and it can be low in women, yet we do see uh, quite a, a and uh, a lot of women these days who have higher testosterone either levels and or testosterone function and ultimately can, de- can develop issues related to having higher testosterone at the expense of lower estradiol or a form of estrogen. Uh, why is that happening?
0: Yeah, great question. So, you know, the idea with testosterone in women is that we want it not too high, but also not too low. We want that Goldilocks position where the hormonal symphony is working at its best. So I actually think of high testosterone in women, uh, which is one of the diagnostic criteria for polycystic ovary syndrome, as very similar to low testosterone in men. So phenotypically, they're very similar. And part of the story in women is related again to insulin. So we know that women who have insulin resistance, or I sometimes call it insulin block, where your cells become numb to insulin and so your insulin levels climb, that makes you hungrier, it makes you store fat, it's part of this metabolic inflexibility that we've been talking about. When that occurs in a woman who's premenopausal, what happens is that the insulin resistance leads to higher testosterone production in the ovaries. So there's this vicious cycle that occurs that can be very hard to break. You know, a lot of women with polycystic ovary syndrome are told, you just got to lose weight. You just got to lose, you know, 5% of your your body mass. But that's not always such an easy solution because these women are very resistant to weight loss. They have metabolic inflexibility. And so once again, food, nutrition, lifestyle is really one of the most effective strategies for dealing with high testosterone. And one other point I want to make about testosterone I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, no, no. Uh, I'm,
1: I'm listening. I'm t- I took a deep <laughs> breath. <laughs> um,
0: so even though men have so much more testosterone than women, testosterone is still the most abundant hormone in women. So we are exquisitely sensitive to it. So if you have a little too much and maybe you have some acne, maybe you have some increased hair growth in places you don't want it, like on your chin or around your breasts, uh, we know that that is a problem. We know that testosterone, when it gets too low, we talked about some of the symptoms of that, and that's especially what I see in women over the age of 40. So we want to do our best to have those nutrition lifestyle pieces in place to keep testosterone in that Goldilocks place.
1: Now, by and large, do you, uh, are you testing women to see the, these levels, or are you using your clinical judgment based upon seeing things like facial hair, uh, inability to lose weight, elevation of blood sugar, et cetera?
0: Well, I practice precision medicine, so I love a good biomarker. I do hormonal testing in all of my patients. But the you know the beautiful thing about hormones is that often you can get a good sense of what hormones are out of whack with the use of questionnaires. So I've used questionnaires online and in my courses for a long time because not everyone can afford to have a full hormonal panel. And unfortunately, we still live in a mainstream medicine world where a lot of physicians well-meaning physicians will say oh your hormones change too much we don't need to measure those and yet if a woman's trying to get pregnant we measure all of these hormones we look at you know testosterone cortisol estrogen progesterone lh fsh we look at uh, insulin and glucose so why is it that it matters when you're trying to get pregnant but it doesn't matter if you're not trying to get pregnant i think that's a double standard so yes i do measure these hormones
1: these and other questions of our modern world. Um, we've talked on, on our program a lot about this uh, idea of estrogen dominance, where estrogen seems to be the, the ma- a major player uh, in ratio to other things like progesterone and uh, testosterone. And we're, we seem to be seeing a, a lot of it uh, these days. Um, you made the point that being estrogen dominant or having high estrogen does tend to uh, compromise uh, a woman's ability either to get into ketosis or at least uh, to derive benefit from ketosis?
0: Yes. So I I used to call it estrogen dominance. I think that term was originally coined by John Lee. And I don't like it as much now. I actually like the term disestrogenism, you know, thinking about estrogen sort of out of balance, not just with progesterone, but with other hormones as well. So we know that... Folks who've got women who have too much estrogen, who have dysestrogenism, often it's a, it's a proxy, it's a marker of gut issues. It's, a, it's an issue related to the liver, to the enterohepatic circulation. Maybe, uh, you know, what I commonly see is women who don't get enough fiber, don't get enough prebiotic fiber. They've got overgrowth of some of the bacteria that make them recycle estrogen over and over again you know, the the bacteria in the gut, for instance, that make beta-glucuronidase. And so when you have this recirculation of the estrogens in your body, that can lead to excess stimulation of the estrogen receptors. We now have six different estrogen receptors that have been discovered. And so once again, we know that getting estrogen back into balance, where it's not too high and not too low, can be very helpful. And that can support getting into ketosis Now, with classical keto, I think that women, again, respond differently. When I first tried keto back in about 2015, 2016, I was making fat bombs. I was uh, eating probably too much butter, having too much saturated fat. Uh, I was doing it with my husband. He lost about 20 pounds. I gained weight. And I realized that Uh, I really... Sorry. I know that testosterone advantage once again showed up. So... What I realized was that I wasn't eating enough fiber. And I think I was in an estrogen dominant state. I was probably eating too much fat for me and I wasn't detoxifying it sufficiently. And so I had to regroup and kind of look at these hormone levels and then come up with a different strategy. But a big part of it was making sure that I was doing clean keto, that I was detoxifying fat, that I was getting the fiber, especially the prebiotic fiber to feed those benevolent microbes in my gut and not the ones, the I think of them as the Homer Simpson bacteria that make you recirculate estrogen like bad karma. We don't want I've, that. At
1: first I've never heard benevolent and I can tell you I've never heard Homer Simpson uh, about <laughs> the gut bacteria, but I'm gonna to have to take that from you and use it moving forward.
0: Well, Homer Simpson, I have to credit Daphne Miller. She came up with that first. I really loved it in uh, her book, Jungle Effect.
1: Um, as it relates to to keto, uh, I, I think that early on, you know, you were talking about in the early days of keto, I think people were carb restricting, and with the knowledge that fiber, by definition, is a carbohydrate, I think that's why fiber, fiber got taken out of the equation, and what a terrible disservice. I mean, you're now telling us the incredible role that our gut bacteria are playing in our metabolism, in regulating glucose, in regulating insulin responsiveness, in regulating uh, detoxification, hormone activity, and production, uh, even, you didn't mention, but even to some degree regulating gene expression, as it were.
0: Yes.
1: uh, That when fiber was taken out of the equation, that was a huge insult. And I think it explained the rocky road that even you might have experienced early on Uh, as people started to think about the ketogenic diet, which, you know, at least Gary Taubes has told us that the natural state of humans may well be coming in and out of ketosis back to our hunter-gatherer days when, at times, we would, not that we would intermittently fast by design, but that there just wasn't food available as being a hunter-gatherer, and we went into ketosis as a way to keep ourselves powered. But you know, there, there comes this uh, um, wanting to understand why we're hungry. And uh, you made some nice comments in the book about uh, the role of, of being in ketosis via the ketogenic diet in terms of another activity of insulin uh, and leptin in terms of satiety. So, you know, for those uh, women who have issues of uncontrolled appetite, Um, maybe you can just take us through that a little bit in terms of how powerful this can be.
0: Yeah, I love that point because I I think that, you know, when I I look at my patients uh, that come to me for weight loss, and I have a lot of them, what I find is that many of them are genomically driven to have a very high appetite. They're driven to have high pro-inflammatory fat. They just... You know, they didn't win the genetic lottery in terms of uh, being really lean, as lean as they want to be.
1: Take the, and, take the diving board off the gene pool.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, this, this is also my story. I think it's part of those of us who would survive a famine really well. We've got the thrifty genes. And what we know is that when women go through that second half of perimenopause where estrogen starts to decline, that can make this whole situation worse. Because estrogen is an appetite, uh, uh, it helps to reduce appetite. When you lose estrogen, when you start to decline in your estrogen levels, you can get a lot hungrier. And we also know that insulin plays an important role. So there's this whole symphony. So estrogen declines, insulin tends to rise as we get older, as we become more metabolically inflexible. Higher insulin makes you store fat more, it makes you hungrier. Leptin gets involved too. You can develop leptin resistance, just like you develop insulin resistance. Leptin's made in the fat, and it tells the brain to uh, keep eating. You know, the whole idea with leptin is that it's the hormone that tells you to put the fork down. And so one of the ways to work with this is to produce ketones. So just as you were describing that, you know, having a period of rest having metabolic rest after, say, a 14-hour overnight fast. That helps in a normal individual to make ketones, and that can help as an appetite suppressant. So I think for women who are over 40 who are working with this appetite issue, it can really be helpful to go into ketosis. And as Gary Taubes talks about, I think it's really helpful to think of it more intermittently. You don't have to go into ketosis for the rest of your life you can come in and out of ketosis so because you're flexible because you're flexible based on the fuel that you have available so you know in my book what i recommend is a four-week period of time in ketosis and then to shift toward more of a low-carb keto mediterranean food plan which i think is more proven when it comes to brain health although uh we have dale bredesen and others um showing us that the ketogenic diet can be very helpful for reversing mild cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's disease. But really the bulk of data is with the Mediterranean diet when we look at nutrition. So I think shifting to a low carb Mediterranean food plan can be very helpful after that four weeks.
1: Well, there's an interesting study that came out in the journal Neurology last month that uh, used uh, a food frequency questionnaire and determined based upon what people said they were eating uh how close they were in their choices to being in, on a so-called mediterranean diet and found that the higher uh they approached being on a mediterranean diet the lower were th- uh, various variables like uh their phosphorylated tau their uh, beta amy- their amyloid uh, 42 to 40 ratio um, and even the more likely they would be to have larger temporal parietal regions on Um, on MRI scans and even better uh, episodic memory function. So, you know, I think there's a lot to be said about that type of diet, which, uh, you know, in its pure form might allow ketones to be produced. I mean, it it isn't necessarily a strictly low-carbohydrate diet, but what it does do uh, is it's a diet that's rich in colorful vegetables, therefore polyphenols, but does have foods like olive oil, et cetera, that have fat in them, which, you know... Um, you know, sorry, Ansel Keeves, we're going to be eating our fat. (laughs) It really challenges this whole notion of fat being bad. But I think everything, uh, you know, has to be looked at in terms of context, the individual patient, but also, uh, as you described early on with, you know, consuming uh, butter and fat balls and all the things, you can go overboard, especially when it's to the exclusion of other things that you need, like dietary fiber. So, you know, I think what you described in your plan uh, which I think was really very, um, very easy for people. The way you, you laid it out is that yeah, it's a ketogenic diet, but look, vegetables are very important. Colorful vegetables uh, offer up important value, especially because of their phytonutrients, but also targeting our gut bacteria and how fundamental that really is. Uh, you, you know, in, in terms of hormone balance and ultimately in terms of metabolism. I mean. You know, you can fingerprint somebody with type 2 diabetes in terms of looking at their gut bacteria and, and really indicate that here is a pattern of gut bacteria that correlates with the body thinking that it needs to make fat, store fat, become insulin resistant because winter's coming. I mean, uh, we know that, for example, there's a dramatic shift in animals in terms of their uh, Diversity and array of bacteria in their gut. Animals that hibernate between the time that they're gathering, eating fructose and fruits and things like that, and high uh, foods, and then when they are hibernating, there's a dramatic shift from, uh, you know, storing and making fat to then shifting over and being able to utilize fat. So, you know, I think that you're looking at the latter and how people can then uh, oxidize fat as a fuel source from their bodies, not only the fat that they're consuming, but turn on the machinery that says you know what we don't need to store fat anymore it's time to uh, burn the body fat that we have and gosh you know I know that you made a very big point that weight loss isn't the goal your goal you made it uh, for chapter one I think that it's not designed to get people to lose weight this isn't a weight loss book it's about being healthy and losing weight is certainly for many women going to be a part of that But uh, it's really about beyond simply storing body fat, the whole widespread ramifications of restoring metabolism to a place of normality through balancing hormones. And as you made very clear, the the very powerful lever is certainly going to be the foods that women choose. Other things play a role, like uh, let's talk about sleep for a moment.
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, I, I always want to respond to some of the things that you said, because I think they're so important. If I could get to sleep in just a moment. Um,
1: we're going to get to sleep in a moment. It's going to make for a great interview. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, so you talked about, you know, this well-formulated ketogenic diet versus, you know, kind of keto 1.0 that I think many folks were uh, disappointed in. And when I went on a ketogenic diet. Uh, five, six years ago, I knew that the average woman ate about 11, 12, 13 grams of fiber a day. And I'm sure that I dropped below that when I went on the first version of the ketogenic diet. And one of the things I do because I practice precision medicine is I looked at my gut bacteria before and after that first ketogenic diet and I had a dramatic loss of diversity after that you know, classical ketogenic diet. And one of the described, yes, very well described and and yet we can really make a difference when we have a well formulated ketogenic diet. One of the things that I found, you know, I cut out fruit and one of the things I found was that my acromantia went to uh, it was absent. I had no acromantia left. We know acromantia is so important for many things. It's involved in uh, blood sugar regulation. It's also involved in so it makes sense inflammation inflammation. It also helps to, to soothe and heal the mucosal lining in the gut. And, you know, it loves to feed on cranberries and pomegranates and these things that I was no longer eating that are a key part of the Mediterranean diet and could be part of a ketogenic diet. So you asked about sleep. You know, I, I feel like when you look at some of the differences, especially when it comes to mental health between men and women, we know that women have double the rate of depression We have higher rates of anxiety. We've got double the rate of Alzheimer's disease. And I think sleep is one of those early things that really affects which path a woman's gonna take. So we know that insomnia is again about double in women compared to men. And I think a lot of it is related to that perimenopausal transition, as well as the menopausal transition where you start to have night sweats and hot flashes, you don't sleep as well. Your sleep gets disrupted. That leads to higher cortisol, higher insulin the next day it leads to more hunger, it can lead to, you know, once again, a vicious cycle of changing the metabolism for the worse. So sleep is one of those things that we really want to protect. It's as close, I don't know if you agree with this, I think it's as close to a panacea as we have uh, when it comes to our toolbox. So I really work with women, I use sleep trackers, at least initially to To make sure they're getting the deep sleep and the REM sleep and the total sleep that they need and they have this feeling of high perceived sleep when they wake up in the morning they feel restored and ready to face the day
1: well i wouldn't call myself an orthorexic in other words i'm not uh you know i'm not hung up day in and day out about you know being so precise about the foods i eat but i sure as heck um pay strict attention to my sleep and, uh, I mean, for me, I, I'm just really sensitive. If I don't get a good night's sleep, I'm just not who I need to be uh, the next day. So I, I really feel it. So I, 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 wear an aura ring. I got a 94 last night, which Ooh. is good. my, my weak area. Now I've, I've done better than that, but my week, um, uh, week area has always been deep sleep, which is, you know, is important for ridding the brain of various accumulations of things that are not good. And, uh, but now I've, now that I've, uh, I, I go to sleep, uh, at least three hours after my last food consumption, it's really been helpful. So, uh, you know, the notion of wearables, I think very helpful for people because you get immediate feedback in terms of making modifications in what you eat, what your activity is, et cetera, in terms of whatever it is you're you're measuring, whether it's your glucose monitor, looking at how coffee might affect your blood sugar or your aura ring and looking at how, you know, watching Netflix at night is not good for the quality and quantity of sleep (laughs) that you get so uh really important now do you have uh, your patients checking their ketone levels at home
0: i do so for patients that are doing this food plan that i developed the four-week gottfried protocol i recommend that they either use a continuous glucose monitor or they use a device to measure both ketones and also fasting glucose every morning occasionally i like to look at the postprandial glucose you can do that with a glucose meter that costs 20 to 30 dollars online or you could use a continuous glucose monitor, which of course gives you more comprehensive data. So I do like to measure ketones. I use that for the four-week period while we're looking at keto adaptation because some women take longer to get into ketosis than others, especially women that are still cycling. I'll see women who get into ketosis, they'll get their period and they pop out of ketosis. So the menstrual cycle can have an effect here as we've talked about. So I do, you know, I. It's like with the aura, I think what you measure improves when you're tracking something, when you've got uh, comprehensive longitudinal data. It really allows you to look at, okay, when I sleep well, look at my glucose the next day. Wow, look at my fasting glucose. My readiness score on my aura was 95 today. My sleep score was 94 like yours. When I see that and then I see the glucose the next day, it allows you to see these connections that I think can really transform health.
1: And I'm going to call it like it is, you know, to be fair, it might be that you're I'm talking to our viewers, your uh, doctor may not be fully dialed in on the technology, on the importance of regulating fasting blood sugar, on the idea of getting into ketosis. So, you know, this is coming from the bottom up now. This is consumer awareness, consumer-led. But having said that, you there was a term in your book I can't think I've heard before or read before uh, that we're in an info right? Infodemic. Did you make that up, by the way?
0: No, no, no. I heard it from Jeff Bland. So let me credit Jeff here. Uh, He's one of my favorite wordsmiths. And it was published uh, when we were early in the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic. Many folks were writing about how, you know, there was so much information coming from different places, some of it trustworthy, some of it not so much. And you know, we've really changed in some ways from an epidemic to an infodemic where you wanna be careful about the source of your information. So that was the point I was making about the infodemic. I also, I appreciate this point about how consumers are really helping us transform the way that medicine is practiced. I think it has to come from the bottom up, but it also has to come from the top down. So I think we have to continue to educate physicians and other clinicians about these other ways of working and um, I also, you know, when we, when we look at the amount of time that patients spend with their physicians, the average appointment's seven to 10 minutes, and it represents less than 1% of their total time. And so there's this other 99% plus of the time that we wanna be tracking health, because health should be the gold standard, not disease. And I think these wearables really help us. With understanding things like metabolic flexibility, with understanding our hormones, with understanding our sleep patterns and that deep sleep that you're working on.
1: We've, we've done a program in the past with a physician who uh, is a type 1 diabetic and was able to reduce his insulin usage by more than 50% uh, by going as a type 1 diabetic uh, on a ketogenic diet. And I, I prefaced my question by, uh, with that because uh, I want to know Uh, Do you feel that there's any woman uh, for whom, uh, who should uh, straight out not do a ketogenic diet?
0: Yeah. um, Well, I think you have to be really cautious, of course, with type 1 diabetes. I think it's, uh, you know, that's where I would recommend working with a clinician who is really knowledgeable, a physician, hopefully that can support that type of care. I think there are certain cancers where we have to be careful. Cancers sometimes feed on glucose, but not all the time. Sometimes they feed on uh, fat. And so I think you have to be careful with cancer. I'm thinking especially of uh, breast cancer patients. I work a lot with breast cancer survivors and with BRCA patients, and oncologists are really cautious. You know, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Siddhartha Mukherjee, who's been looking at the ketogenic diet as an augmentation for the treatment of cancer. And there's some leukemias, for instance, uh, where a ketogenic diet may not be safe. So there's relative and uh, absolute contraindications that I've listed in my book. I don't have time to go through all of them, but I think, uh, you know, you want to be careful with gallbladder disease because uh, fat metabolism might be more difficult you have to be careful with certain uh, metabolic disorders, more genetic metabolic disorders. So there's a list of genes and SNPs that you might want to be aware of. Anything you want to add?
1: Uh, n- well, I mean, the, you know, there there is uh, literature coming out that advocates going on a ketogenic diet, taking advantage of um, you know, the so-called Warburg effect, and um, you know, implementing ketogenic diet as an adjunct, for example, for glioblastoma. Uh, along with radiation surgery, whatever else might be added. Uh, and, and I think the results are interesting. I'm not going to say that they're hugely compelling. I mean, conceptually, in certain forms of cancer, I think it, it could make sense. But I think the application in a patient who's declining with cancer uh, is, uh, is might well be challenging. Uh, but I think that, you know, it, um, Even using something like the fasting mimicking diet has is being looked at aggressively in in terms of cancer uh, as an intervention Adjunct with cancer and I think that some of that result uh, some of those results are actually uh, fairly positive, but I think you make a very good point that Cancer is a very broad term especially when we look at the metabolism of the individual cell type So uh, I think it may prove helpful Um, The last thing I wanted to cover uh, Helpful in some cases the last thing I want to cover uh, is you really unpacked quite a bit in the book the notion of growth hormone and IGF-1 uh, and how, by and large, that seemed to be something that women, under certain circumstances, should consider doing their best to increase. So l- let's hear that a little discussion about that, first of all, and then I want to offer up you know, some of the other things that we've talked about on the program before and maybe compare and contrast
0: growth hormone. So, you know, one thing I realized in my 40s was that my growth hormone was too low. And uh, you mentioned the fasting mimicking diet. You know, a lot of, <clears throat> a lot of the longevity folks like uh, Walter Longo, who came up with the fasting mimicking diet, is a fan of trying to drop growth hormone low. So I think patients can sometimes get confused about what the goal is with growth hormone. Uh, and just to back up for a minute, growth hormone is this hormone that's involved in, uh, visceral fat. Like if your levels are too low, you may have increased visceral fat. It's involved in energy and vitality. And a lot of these things that we, we want as we get older, it tends, the level tends to decline as we age. And in my case, in my forties, I had a growth hormone that was pretty low. It was about half what I wanted it to be. And at the time I was, uh, I was visiting a friend in Hong Kong and he was telling me about this exercise plan he was on called Sprint 8, where he would do, uh, this was kind of before HIT uh, had a lot of popularity. He would do a high intensity interval training for about 75 seconds and then he'd go back to kind of a moderate level of exercise. Uh, he'd do this on a treadmill or on a, um, a bike. And so he would do eight rounds. That's why it's called Sprint 8. He'd do eight rounds of this high-intensity interval training, and I tried it. And I measured my growth hormone as measured by IGF-1, uh, insulin uh, IGF-1. So I measured that before and after doing the Sprint 8, and I was able to raise my IGF-1 by about 50%. So I felt like I was maybe onto something. At the time, I was going to a lot of anti-aging meetings, and folks were – using growth hormone injections, human growth hormone. And I wasn't a fan of that. I just felt like uh, the safety profile wasn't there for me to be able to responsibly prescribe it because of some risk of cancer. And so I felt like, well, here's another opportunity to use nutrition and lifestyle to get growth hormone into that Goldilocks position where it's not too high, but it's also not too low. So what we know, for instance, is that protein is really important for raising growth hormone. Exercise, as I've mentioned, is particularly hit. We know that whey protein can be beneficial in terms of growth hormone. So, I'm a big fan of of getting that growth hormone so that it's it's not too high, but also not too low. That it's high enough to support you with your goals and with that feeling of vitality, and also with uh, the belly fat that tends to show up, especially for women after 40. Um, but again, it's part of this larger symphony. We can't think of growth hormone in isolation.
1: Uh, that was the answer I was hoping for. <laughs> um, you know, there there was a time when you and I were younger, when uh, doctors were prescribing human growth hormone injections. There was a book called Grow Young with HGH uh, by Ronald Klatz, and uh, there were a lot of people jumping on the bandwagon. You know i was asked by patients time and time again can i do growth hormone and i think like yourself i I pushed back a little bit knowing that you know too high a level and again what you mentioned it now, you're you're careful you're looking for that sweet spot but too high a level that could be brought on by injection uh, might overly uh, allow things to grow that we don't want to grow we were talking about cancer earlier and i think there's a big um interest these days in getting to that right spot we know we need, a woman might need adequate amounts of growth hormone for cognitive function, RGF1, insulin-like growth factor 1, for cognitive function, for bone maintenance and uh, growth. Uh, but yet too much, you know, becomes a concern and uh, limits the process of autophagy then. When we're in the growth phase, we're not breaking down defective cellular parts. We call that autophagy, which can be brought on by time-restricted or or at least ketogenic diet and and fasting that's for sure so it's all about balance i i was thinking i've never done this before on the program but uh, several of the uh, previous programs come to mind i want to let our viewers know so to learn more about continuous glucose monitoring that would be the program i did with dr casey means the the work about the fasting mimicking diet that would be a program i did with dr walter longo and then this look understanding the sweet spot that you just described uh, would be a, a, book, a program I did with uh, James Clement uh, about the book he wrote called The Switch. So there's a lot of work being done. But, you know, interestingly, uh, I'm, I think you'll agree with me. We all come back to the same, pretty much all come back to the same place of, you know, a, a, a plate that's really colorful and uh, that fat is important uh, in the human diet. And that really it's the refined carbs that are so disruptive in the case of what you're talking about uh, in terms of metabolism and even hormone functionality.
0: I totally agree with that. I think, you know, there's a lot of confusion about what to do nutritionally. And in some ways, you know, there's these areas of great agreement, such as vegetables, at least five colors a day, getting those phytonutrients. There is some debate about macronutrients and micronutrients and Now, we've talked about the Mediterranean diet as one of the most proven diets, and I love that study you mentioned. I'd love to get a copy of that. What we know is that, well, what I can tell you personally, this is a precision medicine moment here, when I go on a Mediterranean diet, even with no refined carbohydrates, I gain weight. So there's something about my particular blueprint, you know, the way that my genomics talk to my biomarkers, my environment, that leads to me being fatter, fatter than I want to be, fatter than the clothes in my closet allow me to fit into when I'm on a Mediterranean diet. So maybe the problem is that the rest of my life is not like a Mediterranean life. <laughs> um, but I, I realized that, you know, I needed to find this carb threshold that I talk about in the book. I needed to define, you know, the the net carbs that work the best for me, that allow me to feed those benevolent bacteria, those benevolent microbes, but not so much. And not
1: the Homer Simpsons.
0: And not the Homer Simpsons, but also allow me to fit into those clothes in my closet because I love those clothes. So, you know, we each have to personalize. That's really the key, I think, to precision medicine is that we're personalizing. And so my hope is that this protocol allows women to personalize what's going to work best for them.
1: Well, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, I sure enjoyed spending time with you today, and um, it's always great to see you, even if it's virtual. And I'm sure we'll see each other. Uh, I, I've had a really nice chat with um, a couple of other, of your friends recently. Um, Dr. Andrew Newberg. I, I had, oh yes, I was just yes. looking for his book. Yes. And I know he's working with you, uh, Dr. Uh, Daniel. Remind me of his last name.
0: Dan Monty. Yeah. Dan they just Monty, they Right. Just oh, wrote I have yeah. there we
1: are. And uh, uh, they wrote a great book. We had a, we had a, uh, some time together recently as well. So you're in amazing company and you sure deserve it, you know, based on all that you've done and your level of dedication. So great to see you. And I hope to get to see you soon.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Dr. Perlmutter.
1: Well, thank you, Dr. Gottfried, for that amazing uh, interview. The book is uh, really exciting. Looking forward um, to seeing that get published, helping a lot of women, women, food, and hormones. Hormones playing a central role in how a woman feels uh, day-to-day, in health, in longevity, and in terms of the health span. It turns out, as we learned today from Dr. Gottfried, that food choices are probably the most important Uh, Variable that we can, women can uh, choose uh, that have a role to play in balancing uh, hormones, in changing hormone expression, and really tipping the balance in favor of health. Thank you for joining me today. I'm Dr. David Perlmutter, and we will be back soon. Bye bye.